Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild Card Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. I am Nick Seipel. Last week, we talked about dividend stocks. And as part of that discussion, I told folks to write in if they wanted us to do a show on agriculture stocks. Well, I asked and you answered. So that's what we're talking about this week. Lou Whiteman is joining me to share some thoughts on the industry and discuss a couple stocks on our radar. Lou, thanks for joining me. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, Lou, great to have you here. As always, I'm excited to get into this topic today. Obviously, agriculture is a huge, complicated industry, so we're not going to be able to cover it all. But we're going to do our best to give a high-level overview of the industry, spotlight a couple of companies that stand out to us as intriguing opportunities. As always, as I said at uh, the intro, if there's a topic you'd like us to, to hear us cover that we're not going to get into today, email us at industryfocus@fool.com, and we'll do our best to get to it as soon as we can. But with that out of the way, Lou, let's just get some background on the agricultural industry. When we look at the U.S. economy, how big of a chunk uh, does agriculture make up of that? So this is a massive chunk of the U.S. economy. The U.S. Department of Agriculture is my source for most of these stats here. They say that ag and food is a $1.1 trillion, with a T, industry. American farm output alone is worth about $136 billion. That's a, that's a sizable, about 1%, a little under 1% of GDP. Uh, ag and related also represent about 10% of total U.S. employment. And this is also one of these rare sectors where the U.S. is a world exporter, about 25% of agriculture is production is exported. Uh, that means without uh, without agriculture, all of those trade deficit numbers would look even worse. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so when you look at this industry, what does it look like? I know for, for my own kind of bias to hear about this, you know, the farm aid thing with Willie Nelson and all these guys who want to protect family farmers, this idea of kind of the rise of the factory farm. Is that really who, who is owning agricultural assets today? This is a surprise to a lot of people. There was a time in the 80s where this trend sort of reversed, and that's where I think a lot of us set, people like Willie Nelson kind of set our expectations. But uh, owner-operators own about 60% of U.S. farmland. And that number has been pretty stable through the last 50 years. Uh, there are fewer than 32,500 non-family-held corporations that own farmland. Uh, these corporations own less than 5% of U.S. farmland. Where I think the confusion comes in is, is these owner-operators have gotten a lot more sophisticated over the years. The average farmland owner owns 280 acres. These are not mon pa and one field organizations anymore. These are sophisticated businesses, but a lot of them, it is still a very fragmented, it is still sort of a ma-and-pa industry. Right. The other thing I think we think about a lot uh, with agriculture is kind of the relationship with the government. There was this kind of tit-for-tat back with China a while back, and we said, hey, China, you're subsidizing your steel industry. And then China came back and said, hey, you're subsidizing your agricultural industry. What role does the government play in kind of supporting some of the, some of the operators here? So I, I, just to throw it back at you, I can't think of an industry that Washington loves more, and I, I challenge to do that. But but definitely, I mean, if you look at at, at you know f most states, most 
most elected most elected officials deal with farmers, and I think it shows in Washington. Uh, direct government payments to farmers and ranches in 2020 was forecast to finish around 37 billion. You add in cares and all that. Uh, Taxpayers for Common Sense, a group, a watchdog group, uh, estimates it'll be well over 50 billion dollars in direct aid this year alone. Uh, the the 30 to 40 billion number is pretty is is pretty standard even without the cares. Uh, this is this is an industry that gets a lot of support from uh, from lawmakers. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't hurt that the Iowa caucus is the first every year. So folks want to want to make folks happy there and all those sorts of things, you know, helps put ethanol and fuel and all all that. Um, So yeah, when we look at this agricultural sector, before we get into some of these these companies, can you talk about kind of the pros and cons of investing in the sector? What are the what are the, the opportunities there? And then what are some risks involved? Well, the opportunities when things go right, this is a very income rich industry. Uh, This is a good industry to hold if you are in the portion of your investing life where you are looking for dividends, you're looking for steady income. But there are risks you need to uh, look into. This is a hugely cyclical industry, and it doesn't really follow the economic cycle, so it can catch you off guard. Uh, Again, from the USDA, net farm income was $134 billion in 2013. Four years later, that had dropped $80 billion. That's a 40% drop in four years, and that's the second one of these cycles we have seen so far this century. A lot of things go into this. Uh, The weather in the U.S., the weather overseas where we're competing against. Uh, Crop yields can lead to supply and demand getting out of whack. That means less money coming in. That means less money for farmers to invest in technology, chemicals, all of that. So it ripples through for years. And we do see, uh, maybe not the grapes (laughs) sort of thing, but we do see these boom and bust cycles. And it is something to worry about because you are not going to see a steady stream year after year on this. Uh, there's just too many macro factors that 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 weigh into it. Right. An act of God, literally, uh, can, can impact kind of the, the whole the whole area. And sometimes there can be something that's correlated. And you mentioned the Dust Belt. I don't know if we're going to have something like that again in the future, but there can be things that are that are correlated across the whole asset that, that, that could could impact things. I think one other thing to point out is just, just regulatory risks. So one example folks folks think about it is Monsanto. When you throw out Monsanto now, Monsanto is the worst company ever. Um, at one point in time, Roundup was a revolutionary chemical, was really the, you know, changed the game when it came to, uh, came to um, you know, pest, uh, excuse me, like a uh, uh, Herbicide, that that sort of thing, kind of getting uh, getting weeds out of out of farmland. But now it's this huge liability, this albatross uh, around the company. Some of these long long lasting uh, um, liabilities can, can impact some companies in this space. Yeah, I'll tell you, and I'm old enough. I was actually asked on uh, on a business news network once, way back when, is Monsanto a tech stock? Should we think of it that way? And you consider where it's gone now. But yeah, it's, it's a great point. There is a lot of regulatory risk and a lot of, even like with genetically mod- modified seeds, there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of really complex issues that go into this that that can really impact these companies. Yeah, so you talk about genetically modified seeds, maybe some herbicide, pesticide stuff. That, that transitions us into this first company I wanted to talk about with you today. That's Corteva, ticker CTVA. This is a company that hasn't really been on the public markets very long. Uh, came out of the Dow DuPont spinoff in 2019. That would have been the last time we talked about it on the podcast. Can you tell us about what Corteva does? 
So this is kind of the, most of it is the old Dow agrosciences businesses. And as you may, as people may recall, the Dow and DuPont came together with the plan to break off, which is shuffle the assets around and create three more focused companies. So this is the combined with scale agriculture business of those two chemical giants. Uh, the operations are pretty much split between seeds and crop protection, which they do a lot of these modified seeds, specialized seeds. Uh, and then the other side of it is not Roundup, they don't own that, but a, a range of fertilizers and more importantly, herbicides and other products. Uh, we can get into it uh, in deep, but, but there's a lot of there's a lot of synergies here because increasingly we are moving towards crops that resist certain herbicides, which makes it easier to get rid of we weeds. Uh, and uh, it, it's a business that has a lot of potential. It also has, I mean, there's all sorts of stories about if, if, if you're a soybean farmer and you plant these uh, herbicide resistant soybeans, and then you spray the herbicide, your next door neighbor darn well better have that too, or they're going to lose their crop. So there's almost a, a perverse sort of way that once a, a, a product gets popular, it stays popular and grows. And uh, we're in the early days, but uh, that's what Crodiva is going for with soybeans and a lot of other products. Right, these two these two sides of the business kind of rhyme together. I'll I'll I will develop some type of you know whether it's a pesticide or an herbicide or, or what have you, and then I'll also develop a proprietary seed that is resistant to the, those sorts of um, to those those pesticides or herbicides. And and you know one one thing you know talk about the, the business historically. It, Monsanto has been so dominant in the industry that that Cortiva is actually paying significant amounts uh, of royalties um, to Monsanto for using uh, some of their traits. But there are some opportunities uh, for Cortiva. You know, talk about the, the investment case here uh, to as they they move more and more of their product uh, to to their own kind of proprietary uh, seed traits and things like that. They can take out uh, some of those um, some of those licensing fees they're paying to Monsanto. Really gives them an opportunity you can project out over the next several years where they can expand their margins in a meaningful way. Yeah, yeah, no. This is the, the the idea of it. If you have a better mousetrap, it will sell. I mean, I mean, your customers are very reliant on getting the best yield they have, and uh, yeah, I mean, that has been the business model for these chemical companies. That's why they are so involved in ag. Uh, and yeah, I mean, w we have a company at scale that I mean, they're, they're one of a few, but are, are really trying to do this in a coordinated way at scale, where they can really dominate a market. Yeah, so just to throw some numbers out that out there in 2018, they had about 18% of their of their uh their uh, their portfolio it was patented their own, you know, existing in-house patents. They expect to have 34% of that by by 2023. So really expanding that the patent portion of of their portfolio, also introducing um, some new herbicide pesticide products to the market. Hopefully, it can take some share um, from Monsanto, some of these other other companies. So, so I pulled a stat: two thirds of uh, Cortiva's Pioneer soybean seeds use Monsanto's chemical traits now. So this significant portion of, of their seeds that are they're you know subject to some of these licensing fees, but over time uh, can bring those down. And and hopefully uh, expand margins uh, as well as when they're when they're launching some of these uh, some of these new products. Um, the other thing to think about as well is since the spin, they've been trying to get some of their costs under control, reducing headcount, um, those sorts of things. Can you tell us some about kind of their their efforts there, Lou? Yeah, so they've reduced their manufacturing footprint pretty substantially. I think from uh, 29 to 20 facilities since 2017. Uh, Headcounts down 25. percent And again, this is what you'd expect from a merger. Uh, you know, they've th th there's there's a lot of efficiencies to be wrung out here, and um, I, you know, th frankly, they've they've done a decent job of it. They, they they're still trying. I I don't think they would say, and we'll get into it in a second with some of the actresses. They're the first to say that the job isn't over, but uh, this 
is an early days company that they're still trying to put together the pieces they have and, and, and develop it out. Right. We talked about that, that margin expansion opportunity. If you look at their adjusted EBITDA margin, about half of what competitors, so Bayer Monsanto is giving about 26.9%, uh, FMC, another competitor, about 28%, compared to about 14% for, for Corteva. We talked about this opportunity to expand margins as they introduce new products and get less reliant on, on some other licensed traits. However, uh, <laughs> for some investors, not happening fast enough, in particular, starboard value. Yeah, Starboard is a very well-known activist fund, and they we started getting hints back in November that they were going to get involved, and they have now uh, called nominated eight directors to the board of, for the twelve places, and they are seeking to oust uh, CEO Jim Collins due to what they call mediocre performance. Uh, we should note that since this company went off on its own, uh, June 2019, the stock is up 32%. And that's basically in line with the S&P 500. And it's a lot better than either the other two. It's, it's sibling companies that came out of Dow DuPont. Uh, DuPont's up about maybe 19 and uh, Dow less than that, about 10%. So it's not that the company is underperformed, but uh, there is, as you say, the margins aren't what they want. Uh, Collins, the CEO in response to Starboard said, quote, probably the only question in the whole discussion is our view of the timing of the improvement. I mean, he, they're the first to say there's improvement. But um, yeah, I mean, this it's going to be interesting as far as an investor looking at this stock to see who's in charge in the next few months and whether or not there is an overhaul in the strategy, which could be good, could be not so good. Yeah, it'll be interesting because management has laid out a, a like like we talked about earlier, a path to where you can you can see margin expanding over time, and given the nature of the business, once you get in with these farmers, this is this is your core business, right? You have to grow these crops. So once you're in with these folks, it's going to be very difficult uh, to, to dislodge them. So there's clearly an opportunity there. It's going to be interesting to see, you know, with activists coming in, whether that is something that accelerates the pace of this transition, or whether this is a distraction that that you know gets in place of their execution. We'll see. I will say that. Starboard historically has been a great allocator of capital, and when they identify an opportunity, there tends to be real value there. So we'll, we'll see yeah. what happens. Any, any last yeah, I have a lot there? of respect for Starboard. Uh, definitely, I, I think for investors who are interested in this, it's really important to note February fourth is when Cretiva is supposed to do earnings. Uh, their analysts are basically right at the top in terms of their estimates for it compared to Cretiva's range. It's possible Cortiva was uh, lowballing or, or was being uh, you know conservative. Analysts also see thirty percent growth in twenty twenty one. So it'll be really interesting to hear what they say about that. That I I, I got to believe that they're going to try to paint a positive message, whether it's it is or not. But it'll be really interesting to see how the story progresses when they do release earnings and uh, and what they see for twenty twenty one and beyond. Yeah, I don't own shares in Cortiva today, but this is definitely one that's going to go on my watch list because you can you can see where where the story plays out. You can see how they would be kind of ingrained with their customers. How this is something that's mission critical uh, to the business. So something I'm going to be watching, and you know, when earnings come out here and uh, here here next week, uh, we'll take a look at them. Um, another company I wanted to talk about today, uh, Lou, is Gladstone Land. We mentioned them briefly last week on the podcast uh, with Matt Delalo. That's ticker is Land. Pretty easy, pretty easy uh, to follow. What can you tell us about uh, Gladstone Land? So this is a farming REIT. Uh, they own farmland in, I believe, about 13 states. Uh, they pay monthly dividends. Uh, they yield right now about 3.3% annually, uh, and it has been increasing. And uh, this is a business, it's a pretty straightforward business. They buy the land, they lease it back to farmers. Uh, the interesting thing here is it gives you exposure to the farms without making a bet on, on an initial farm with a pretty... Pretty standard, but yet pretty attractive uh, setup with the way they set up their leases. You know, 
Right. They, they mostly use triple net leases, which for, you know, that's just kind of a finance term. But just to explain that in common sense terms for you, it means the person who's leasing the property treats it like they're the owner. So they pay the taxes on it. They pay, you know, the licensing you know, or whatever. They pay the maintenance, all those sorts of things. So from the perspective of, of you know, the, the REIT, excuse me, Gladstone land, they lease out the property, they collect their rent payments, and, and they're not responsible for, for any of those other, other kind of expenses that go into maintaining uh, the property. That's distinguishable from another type of, of lease where, where the person who owns the property, the lessor, uh, would be the one uh, uh, paying those sorts of expenses. They also have some of their, some of their leases are participating, or they get some income from the farm, but primarily uh, they're doing these triple net leases. I think another thing that's, that's interesting when you look at their, their focus, they talk about they're focused on, on two primary areas, which is annual fresh produce and permanent crops. So, what's that? So, annual fresh produce is stuff like fruits and vegetables, tomatoes, things like that, stuff that you you uh, plant um, and harvest every year. And then permanent crops are things like blueberries, nuts, things like that, that you plant, and then you'll have like a 10-year a ten year life uh, uh, once you have that kind of orchard or what have you um, up and running. They're focusing on these areas, you know, to the detriment of things like wheat and, and, and corn and those sorts of grains that are more, more commodity products. What they say is, is for for those uh, for those fresh produce, you get both higher rents and lower risk than those commodity commodity crops. So they're focusing on areas where, where they think there's a little bit lower risk for themselves and they can generate higher income, uh, but by by having that focus. So um, interesting opportunity to to invest in in farmland uh, here in here in the U.S. Yeah, and and I think one thing interesting and in, in comparing it to other REITs and trying as as a REIT investor, I mean, a lot of REITs are tied to the economic cycle. Whether it's industrial REITs, uh, the definitely the retail, we saw that in twenty twenty, uh, even some of the apartment REITs, and a, a lot of. Uh, the farm is tied, as we said, the farm could be very cyclical, but it tends to be tied to a cycle other than the economic cycle. So it may fall with it, but it may be an opportunity to kind of keep yield coming in when other sectors are in trouble, which kind of makes it, as far as REIT diversification, I think makes it an interesting thing to think about. Yeah, especially for someone looking for income, you want something that's non-correlated, and also they're paying dividends on a monthly basis. So, so if you're owning, you know, the stock like this, so you can get regular dividend income coming in to support yourself for retirement or, or what have you, this is the type of of company that, you know, it's unlikely you're going to experience volatility that's in line with what goes on in the stock market. Obviously, <laughs> demand for for farmland is, it doesn't fluctuate in the same way that, that maybe the stock market does on a year-over-year basis, and uh, they're paying you out dividends on a monthly basis, so you can get these kind of steady steady income coming in. So if you're someone who is an income investor. I think that this is something you could you could put on your radar as something that can give you kind of steady, dependable income in a way that you know you can sleep at night relatively comfortably. Um, one last company I wanted to talk about, Lou, and you know this is one I, I think it's maybe you pay attention to, but not not one I'm super excited to, to run in and buy. But there's a company called App Harvest. Uh, it's coming public uh, via a REIT this year, kind of in this vertical farming space. We talk about Gladstone land buying kind of traditional farmland. App Harvest taking taking a very different approach, trying to lean into some of this ESG uh, type movement. Yeah. Yeah. So let's look at this. I mean, it, it probably wouldn't surprise you that the US is the biggest global farm exporter, as we said, but it might surprise you that the Netherlands, the tiny little country, is number two. And the way they do that is tech, greenhouse farm structure. App Harvest has sort of taken that model and bringing it to the US. Uh, they have, I believe, three farms in Appalachia. Uh, they The pitch is they can produce 30x the yield using 90% less water. Uh, right now, it's mostly tomatoes and it is early stage. But I, I'll tell you, I don't own this stock either. I I love this idea. There's some reasons that I'm not buying in right now that we can get into. But this is fascinating to me. And it really feels like 
you know, we talk about making the uh, making the world a better place. This is the sort of company that we need them to be successful to make the world a better place. Uh, the warning on it is, is it is a SPAC, so it's not public yet. Right now, it's, I believe, NOVS, Novus is, and that deal should close soon. Uh, the This is also... I'm not the only one excited about it. I mean, what I, I I tend not to like to buy IPOs and, and new companies anyway, and I think the caution around buying into the excitement applies here. I mean, there is a Martha Stewart video on their website talking up the company, which I love Martha Stewart, but that sort of that's a hype level that makes me want to just watch and see what they produce. This is just three little farms in Appalachia right now and a great idea. I I this is all over my watch list. I would imagine I would love to hold it at some point, but just be careful because this is as we saw with SPACs last year in other areas. This is a very people are very excited about this. Yeah, I think like we've said for a lot of these companies is you know it- the prospects are great. I think when you look at the, the reduced water usage, you know, uh, better environmentally friendly, all the, all those sorts of things. I like that they're in Appalachia. Someone who's from the south, I like it when more rural areas get some people actually, you know, investing money there. Um, but again, there, there's a lot of execution between now and really getting to a place that you know this is the future of farming, and you know they're going to reach scale and, and all those sorts of things. But this is a company I'm definitely going to have have my radar on and pay attention to as they continue um, to report earnings. Because you could tell yourself a story about how this type of kind of vertical farming, indoor farming, kind of disrupts this traditional model. It can be more efficient, cleaner, etc. Something to continue uh, paying attention to as we have more information. Because this company, like you said, Lou, isn't all the way public yet. We still got to have this fact deal finalized, and then we get all our all our fun SEC filings and quarterly calls and all those sorts of things. So once we have that, I, I'll be very much looking forward to seeing what the company has to say. Right, right. And just to finish up on too, I mean, the interesting thing here is that it is sort of a proven concept because it has worked elsewhere. Uh, the downside to that is is that it needed to work there. You know, Netherlands just doesn't have, and and you know, this is an expensive proposition to get started to to get going. You know, I mean, the there's potential there, but in a land in, in a country blessed with almost seemingly unlimited farmland for now. It's it, it for long term it makes sense, but in the short term it could be a hard thing to really get up and running. So yeah, I I think you're right. Just one to watch. Yeah, I think that's something I think about a lot with the history of the US is like not a lot of comp- uh, countries over the past 200 years have had a lot of blank space on the map to expand into, but the US has definitely been a beneficiary of that. Um so and that comes with farmland and lots of other things. Um, <laughs> not to mention that Mississippi River going right down and providing transportation. But yeah, but now I'm getting on a tangent. So I'll yeah. stop. <laughs> um, All right. Uh so before we go away, Lou, just any advice for folks who are interested in investing in this kind of agriculture space? You know, if you don't want to pick individual stocks, maybe ETFs to pay attention to, things like that. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think if, if nothing else, the point I think we've tried to make here today is that there is value here, especially for income. Uh, there's the old expression that, you know, land is important because they're not making more of it. But, you know, and and it still applies. Agriculture is is key to our existence. Uh, They're not making more land. This is a business that over the long term can work, but has a lot of risks. So yeah, there are some interesting uh, and awesomely tickered, uh, I should say, ETFs in this sector. Uh, I'm really interested in the market vectors agribusiness, which has a ticker of Moo, M-O-O. I like that. It's it's got 60 or so stocks. You get some exposure to uh, 
animal health, uh, zoitis and uh, idex, some of those, which I know are popular here. But you also get a lot of the seeds and chemicals in a pretty diverse basket. Uh, there's another one, Veggie, which is an ETF that's a little more concentrated. Uh, both of them have companies like John Deere in it too, which is one we didn't get, but which is a service provider to ag, which is very interesting. Uh, you know, the farmland REITs, I think looking at that, uh, I like land. There's also Farmland Partners, which is FPI, which I think is sort of the same idea. I don't know if it's as as, as worked out as uh, as Gladstone Land, but you know, this is just an area where when cloud isn't working so much, or if you're looking for a little more income, a some way to get into this and have some exposure for a 20, 30 year portfolio, I think makes a lot of sense and is worth looking at. Absolutely. So, you know, it gives you exposure, as we said earlier, to, to an industry that is not going to not going to trade correlated with the rest of the markets, or particularly for an income investor, an area to, to pay attention to. And again, I don't think farming is going to go away. Um, no. Kind of an easy bet to predict, right? I mean, it's kind of the the, the beginning of civilization was farming, and I think uh, if you're betting on civilization sticking around, farming is going to stick around too. So, an interesting area uh, to invest in if you're looking for something uncorrelated that that can kind of give you some steady returns uh, over time. Lou, as always, I love having you on the podcast, and I can't wait to have you on again next time. Always a pleasure, Nick. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for mixing the show. For Lou Whiteman, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening, and Fool on. Fool on.